Welcome to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. I thought it might be a good time to visit the book of Titus and remind us and myself included uh, what exactly is required of the task and what is uh, needed in God's ministers, in pastors. The book of Titus is short. It fits on two pages, actually less than two pages of uh, your hard copy Bibles. And it's written to a young man who is becoming a pastor and is really a a leader of the early church. Uh, He's been working alongside Paul and Paul has left him on Crete. And he gives some instructions about what he ought to look for. Titus has been left there in in Crete, and Paul writes to him with a task, with a mission. He says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, there's something left over from Paul and Titus's ministry in Crete. It seems that the gospel had begun to spread, Throughout the land, they formed relationships with people there. They knew about the culture. They visited towns. And they were confident that God was at work on that island. Now, Crete's over 3,000 square miles. And there's a lot to do. And we're told that Titus has to put what remained into order. To put something in order means to sort out the situation. That's, that's really what Paul means, sort things out. Elon Musk is apparently in talks with the Prime Minister of Thailand about putting a Tesla gigafactory in Thailand. Now, if all goes according to Musk's plans, then there will at some point be one of these huge factories there. And if that does happen, do you think Elon Musk is going to spend one, two, or three years in Thailand, sorting out all the details, figuring out where to put the factory, who to hire, what else is required, and so on. No, I don't think he's going to do that. I don't think he's going to spend several years of his life there. He's got other things that he wants to worry about, and what he's going to do is quite simply delegate. He's going to find other executives, other people, in the company to represent Tesla there in Thailand. It's the same idea on Crete. Titus is kind of like a Christian executive. He's been delegated with tasks. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the church is a business or ought to be like a business or that you should call me or Justin a Christian executive. Please don't do that. But delegation is a real thing. They had to divvy up the responsibility and Titus was entrusted with the ministry in Crete. A big part of the job, and in this passage, is to figure out what kind of pastors are going to be there. What kind of people should Titus look for and appoint? There's a list of terms, virtues, and vices, including teaching qualifications on the list. But they all boil down to two things. Two things, gospel and godliness. 
thankfully two G's, which should be easy to remember, qualifications and qualities. Men who can teach the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus Christ, and also live it out. Gospel and godliness. If you ever forget or are unsure about what to look for in a pastor of any kind, just remember those two things, gospel and godliness. The passage treats godliness first, that is living in a way that's pleasing to God. So let's begin where it begins. If anyone is above reproach, it says in verse 6, this is the number one word. It's the summary term. The household situation that's described, the character qualities, the teaching abilities, everything needs to be above reproach. You'll see the word in verses 6 and 7. If anyone is above reproach, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Some translations say blameless, which gets at the idea. The pastor needs to be free of accusation. His character should be clear of charges against it. Other Greek authors of the time used the word to describe someone being cleared of actual legal charges from the state. That person innocent, blameless, above reproach. It's interesting, in the New Testament, the word's not actually associated with being an all-round good person. It's used to describe the kind of person who's been changed by Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach for him. First Corinthians as well, Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless, that is, above reproach, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has no charge to bring against those who are united to Christ. That, of course, is the ultimate end of the Christian life. It's the final stage of salvation a completed process, but that's not the reality now. So by above reproach, at the moment, I think Paul means something like this. Someone who knows Jesus and doesn't have a glaring character flaw. Knows Jesus and doesn't have any glaring character flaws. It's not that pastors are perfect people. It's not that they're fully sanctified, as we might say, in Christ. Paul even calls himself a sinner of sinners. So what he's getting at is this, Titus, I want you to find people who know Jesus and don't have any glaring character problems, people who are above board. Practically, I think it works like this. Arthur's a great guy, but he loves his gossip. Justin, he's such a godly man, but you know, he's always losing his temper. Did you see what happened last week at that lunch? Or my pastor's really solid. But everyone knows that he treats his wife terribly. It's the but 
It's the but in those sentences. It's not perfection. It's not flawlessness. It's definitely not simply presenting well and hiding your flaws. Titus has to find real people, by the way, in Crete. And above reproach means that the pastor has no notable flaws of character. None of those regular qualifications about who they are. Because someone might use those to bring a charge against that person and therefore a charge against the gospel and against God's church. And being this kind of person has everything to do with knowing Jesus Christ. Gospel and godliness. Jesus and godliness go hand in hand. Now this kind of godly character shows itself in two venues. What can Titus actually look for besides doing a kind of character interview? Well, if we go back to verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Not all pastors are married, and I don't think it's a requirement, but if they are, the best litmus test for their love for the church will be their love for their spouse. Marriages come in all shapes and sizes, which is wonderful, but they all thrive on fidelity, on respect, and on Christ-like love. If the potential pastor has children, again, not a requirement, then those children should be believers as well. Now, I think this refers to children in the home, not those who have left home and started their own lives. But the big thing here is that household life forecasts church life. In another one of these pastoral letters, Paul says that the prospective pastor must manage his own household well. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Personal life is a measure of spiritual eligibility. That's really difficult. I find that really tough. Jesus says one who is faithful with very little is also faithful with much. There was a Gallup poll in America recently that ranked levels of honesty and morality based on professions. So people took a survey and they had to rank people from kind of one to five uh, based on profession to say, is that profession uh, honest uh, and morally upright? So you might say not at all. Uh, You might say somewhat. You might say I'm neutral or very much so and incredibly so. I've just taken the selection here. We'll start with nurses. 78% of people thought nurses were honest and morally upright, or very honest and very upright. Chiropractors were on the list, which I thought was interesting, uh, and they're down at 33%. Bankers on the list too, of course. They ranked in at 19. So where were clergy? Well, they say clergy are just below chiropractors and honesty and moral uprightness. 32% for clergy in the poll were very high in honesty and morality. The calling is high. Godliness is difficult and it's important. 
And it's not going to happen without the transformation brought about by knowing Jesus Christ. Pastoring is not a bootstrap, pick-yourself-up job. Just trying to force a family into Christ-like growth. Force a friend into being mature in Christ. You can't. Jesus is a must. The second venue is personal character. That was household life, which is daunting enough. Paul goes on to personal character. Verses 7 and 8 list 11 personal qualities. What I like to think of as five red lights and six green lights. The five red lights are these. Arrogant, that is, in some sense, self-important. Quick-tempered. A drunkard. Violent. I once heard a pastor on a recorded interview refer to himself as pugilistic. Someone said, how would you describe yourself? And he says, I like a fight. And I don't think that's really uh, what people are looking for in pastors. Greedy for gain. And that's not just financial gain. But that's paired, I think, thankfully, with six green lights. Hospitable. A lover of good. Someone who is self-controlled, upright and holy, and disciplined. There may seem to be a good bit of emphasis on being self-controlled, on being disciplined, of having yourself in order. But I think it's understandable, given that we know it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy it. So you might be upright and you might be holy. But without discipline and self-control, someone can lose credibility in an instant. As a church, this calls us to several things. One of those things is to value the right things in our leaders. Sometimes it is difficult to know what to look for. And this is putting out things very clearly in terms of what we ought to look for and value in our leaders. Second, it provides a model to live by. Because this list is, yes, for pastors, but several of these things show up later in Titus for everyone. Everyone is to be self-controlled. Everyone is to be upright. Everyone in the church is to strive after holiness. And it shows that the model is not found in the pastor, but in Christ. And that's because there are words on there like upright and holy. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the ordination process when someone becomes a pastor. In the Presbyterian Church, you go through an interview, sort of informal interview, and then you submit character references. You have a written application which has all sorts of questions on there, personal questions, questions about how you go about ministry, and theological questions as well. And it all culminates in a floor exam where 50, 60, 70 people might gather, and the prospective pastor stands up front and has to answer whatever questions people feel they want to ask. When I was going through the written application, there was a really striking question on there, and it wasn't the theology, it was the personal question. And it said this, which of the qualities on that list from Titus do you struggle with the most? 
Which of those qualities do you struggle with the most? It was not describe and defend how you, as a prospective pastor, are above reproach. It's daunting. In fact, it's impossible by our own power to live up to these standards. So if we've been reading this and thinking, I've got the whole list sorted out, then we might need to reconsider. Only God supplies the godliness that's required to lead his church. In Galatians, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul, by the way, the servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says that all that he is, is thanks to Jesus dwelling inside of him. Later in Titus, he makes it clear Again, that these qualities are for everyone. The grace of God has appeared that trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control, being upright, being godly. That's for me. That's for you. That's what Jesus is forming in us and should make us depend dearly on him. These are the riches that God gives to those in Christ. Godly people are also gospel people. This is the second G. In verse 9, Paul says, The pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Godly character and gospel teaching, these are the two primary marks of a pastor. And Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. The stress here is on devotion to the scriptures. Now, in most sports that involve a ball, to make progress and to score, you've got to be holding on to the ball. Sounds simple, but it's not always simple, of course. The whole game is driven by that. And if someone thinks they run down the field and score or even just make any kind of progress, but they realize that they don't have the ball in hand, they haven't been holding firm to what they need to hold on to, then any notion of progress is an illusion. Any points they think they scored are not real at all. And this can happen in churches as well. We can focus on numbers. We can focus on particular kinds of theological debates, and so on. But if the pastor's not holding firm to the basics, to the essentials, to the revelation of Jesus Christ laid out in the Bible, that any notion of progress is an illusion. The pastor can't be committed. I cannot be committed to goofy theological debates, to esoteric points of interpretation, to what we call hobby horses, it's to know the knowledge of the truth that's been revealed by God. One interpreter puts it this way, the message that pastoral leaders are charged to uphold is not theirs to invent, to shape to their own demands, or to edit to their preferences. They are to embrace, to live, and impress the teaching that they've received upon their followers. 
it's so easy to get distracted from the basics, from the core truths of Christian teaching. I, for one, am someone who's very interested in irrelevant details, actually. I know I'm not alone in that. Some of you are researchers uh, for a living and just love a little rabbit hole to go down. And that's not a problem. Actually, it can really strengthen the church. It can really strengthen what we understand about the Bible, to spend weeks and weeks on some little word, on one verse, on some historical question. It's wonderful, really. But what it can't do is come to dominate what we do here, to gather for worship, to investigate and hear about the Bible. As you gather in Bible study, as you pray, as you have personal devotions, in all of these places, it's really important to keep the basics the basics, to keep the main things the main thing. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Lastly, the pastor holds firm to the Word of God and does two things with it. He's supposed to give instruction in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. In other words, he encourages and refutes. The stress here is not on being clever or creative or winsome or up-to-date. Those can be good things, and the Lord will use them but it's primarily about building people up in their faith and protecting them from danger. The Reformation theologian John Calvin said a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. I think Calvin is right. I think he's also right about the primary image of the pastor. That's the meaning of the word, actually. Shepherd. The shepherd feeds or brings to pasture and protects. My final point this morning is to say that we're actually not shepherds as pastors. We're under-shepherds. Under-shepherds. Paul calls himself a servant of God. Titus is a spiritual son to Paul. Elders are God's stewards serving on his behalf. Everyone in the church is considered a sheep, a part of God's flock. It's a wonderful image. It's a wonderful reality. Because Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. In fact, I've given this sermon a title, Godly Gospel Shepherds. Probably not my best title. Um, but if you want to, feel free to scratch out that final S. Godly Gospel Shepherds. Feel free to scratch out the final S. Godly gospel shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The book of Hebrews 2 says, the Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. The church needs godly gospel-gripping pastors. Yes, those things only happen when Jesus is the shepherd and recognized as such. Is anyone ultimately above reproach? I think we've come to see that, no, we're not going to find people who are completely above reproach. But someone was and is above reproach. Jesus is. Is anyone sold out to the gospel and able to preach it and to live it wholeheartedly? Yes, Jesus. From this, there are two things 
that we need to hear. On the one hand, it's warning. It's warning the church belongs to God. Jesus is the shepherd and he will protect it. And the other thing is encouragement. Encouragement, because the church belongs to God. Jesus is the shepherd and he will protect it. Its growth and its goodness are not in our hands. They're in God's hands. He supplies the godliness required. He supplies the life-transforming message to be taught. Thanks be to him. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.